Mind Rolling, and I'm welcoming Connie Zweig uh, to the show. We're just meeting, just like most of the podcasts you hear me do, and she wrote this wonderful book, The Inner Work of Age and Shifting from Role to Soul. That might sound familiar to everybody out there. Uh, welcome, Connie. Hi, Raghu. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. I um, I do want to say one thing, which is a little bit of a commercial for the podcast network, Be Here Now Network, uh, and Ramdas.org, not much of one, but uh, just in real, this is a wonderful uh, book that uh, Connie has written, and there is so much useful information, and, and, and I have an idea around the first thing I want to mention to everybody, it, well, off the bat, this has nothing to do. If you're not over 50, you shouldn't bother with this book, okay? If you're thinking like that, I, I'm really encouraging, have been all along. Yes, okay, we, I am part of a generation that is facing this more imminently, the transition. And it makes sense, uh, yet the the... Older I have gotten, uh, I, I did delve into this when I was very young. I went to India when I was in my early 20s. So, it, you know, so I had the relationship with the, the idea of the transition being on multiple levels, not just your physical body dying, which you talk about in the book. So um, it's, you know, start early. <laughs> okay, the, you know, All of I, this is relevant, even and nothing to do with dying. It's just perspective and the, I mean, the role to soul and and all of that. So, before you get into it, I just want to say it's really fits with what's in this book and Connie's obvious connection to Ramdas, uh, that there is a, a Gita course being presented by Love Serve Remember Foundation. And it's uh, available now to, um, it's all free, obviously, S suggested donation if you can. But if you can't, it is free. Uh, and just go to ramdas.org forward slash Gita course, G-I-T-A course. It is one of the top, certainly 10 retreats that Ramdas ever did. And it was the first one at Naropa University in, in the summer of 1974. It's an amazing thing. We actually have footage of it, video footage, not just audio. So we have kind nice. of both. Yeah, so it's really great. So there, okay, that's it. That's our sponsor's message from Love Serve <laughs> Remember Foundation. So I just, so where do we stopped about, this is not just, okay, if you're getting close, you need to read this book. <laughs> Right, or uh, that's just not true. Am I right or wrong? Well, we're aging from the moment we're born. We're incarnated into an aging body, right? So age is not only about later life. Different stages of life carry different tasks, different developmental tasks, and different meanings and purposes for us. I just had a 30-year-old friend tell me that he read my book and it's changed forever how he's going to think about his life and how he's going to age. And one of the really interesting kind of compelling reasons that I wrote this, Raghu, 
is that I found the research of Becca Levy at Yale, a psychologist at Yale, who has spent her whole career examining um, how unconscious images, attitudes, and beliefs about aging affect us throughout the lifespan. So in childhood, when we're internalizing ageist attitudes, it's going to shape how we age at every stage of our lives. So you're exactly right. This is not only about people beyond midlife. It's really, really important for all of us to understand how our inner, our inner I call it the inner ageist, how the part of us that's either denying aging or carrying negative messages about it um, is really shaping our experience. And that happens from the beginning. We take the body, we start to age. Mm. You're just prompting me in my memory about something, about the reality of which we are ageists. I mean, it's amazing how many things we are, or at least the story we tell ourselves about who we are. Because I had a teacher once, and uh, we went on a trip to a seminar over the weekend, and then she was dropping me off uh, at a hotel, motel, you know, for the, for the night. And she she knew that I had this bullshit going on about aging people, and she dropped me off at a, um, a facility that was for seniors, basically, right? I had no idea. <laughs> she checked me and says, see ya. What a wise and, person. Though. And uh, the, the trip that was going on in my head, uh, I mean, just phenomenal. And right. all the way to, well, actually, even before that, when I had gotten to India, I got to have darshan of uh, Mother, who's this great saint, who lived uh, with uh, one of the great philosopher sages in India, Sri Aurobindo. Yes. And uh, I actually got to be with her, but she was in a moment very uh, old at the time, over 90, and maybe had Parkinson's or something and lost motor control. And I'd heard all this stuff and I was like going in there. I was like, I didn't want to get caught in that because I knew how easily... Uh, that story was embedded in me and there was absolutely nothing that was going to move me in in the moment except something like this which was walking in the room it was full of light which is you know the kind of woohoo books you read about you walked in there was light well there was i don't know what to say i can't say it was light but it was light and then she you know i had this wonderful encounter with her for uh, that was deep beyond anything that i had you know um before uh, it was a before and it was an after in terms of being with a holy person basically yes. so uh not that ramdas wasn't holy but this person was in another um shall we uh so much further down the line perhaps in that moment and uh and it obliterated this whole ageist thing that i had going on because i was taken right into beyond the bodies not hers not mine i didn't see anything so uh i appreciate you bringing that up and and that is part of again i i i want to keep reinforcing the fact that these concepts and and the perspective that connie brings to them uh, and the wisdom and insight uh is useful for everyone now this is not for old people 
all those. No, that's right. It's about age is our curriculum. You know, it's all grist for the mill, as R.D. always said, right? So if the grist that we're experiencing is about aging, this is how to use it to cultivate consciousness. If the grist is not about aging, there are lots of practices in here that you can use in general for your psychological work, for your emotional development. But the point for me was that I was in my late 60s. I'd been doing sitting practices for 50 years. I'd been a depth psychologist for 30 years. And I began to feel disoriented. And I was really surprised that that would happen to me. And as I started interviewing people and recognizing that there was a late life identity crisis that really hadn't been identified, I started to see these connections between spiritual practice and stage of life and how I could guide people. You know, I'm known as the shadow expert from meeting the shadow and romancing the shadow. So how I could help people uncover the unconscious shadows that they were caring about age and move more deeply into spiritual practice and have this shift in identity that Ramdas called role to soul. So that's how I oriented the book. And it reoriented me. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Um, yeah, there's so much really useful here, information around the shadow. So yeah, shadow awareness uh, is one very, yeah. let me just read something actually from it, if you don't mind. Um, when we learn how to establish a conscious relationship with those parts of ourselves that are outside of awareness, we can attune to our many inner voices and detect which can be guides for us now and which can sabotage our dreams. We can learn to slow down, turn within with curiosity. I like that. With curiosity and open to what's calling to us without dismissing it and without being taken over by it. That's what I call romancing the shadow. And I think you need to trademark that, Connie, and it will <laughs> be the next uh, big movie, a rom-com. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we published Romancing the Shadow, somebody actually auctioned the rights for it. Oh, really? But no, yeah. you know, it's Hollywood, never happened. Yeah, right. But uh, let's be with that for a minute, because, um, you know, in in most spiritual communities, as you know, there's very little talk of the shadow. And there's very little understanding. I mean, in Ken Wilber's integral world, there it's included. Um, but in most Eastern cultures that are not psychological, that come from different kinds of roots and lineages, um, it's not included. But for me, my two lineages have been depth psychology and Vedanta and Vedanta. Mm. I mean, you mentioned the Bhagavad Gita. It's like my Bible. Mm. So how do we bring these worlds together? I mean, that's really what my mission has been. And um, for me, if we do spiritual practice and we focus on transcendence and moving beyond ego, but we don't actually process our emotional material, especially our unconscious material, 
could be from birth, could be from childhood, could be from later experiences, then um, we see what happens, Raghu. We see all these spiritual teachers who act out their shadows over and over. You know, the 1980s was full of that, right? So I've been trying to kind of build this bridge between these worlds and, um, and really follow Ramdas's teaching that this is grist for the mill. This is not to be avoided. So let's say something about the shadows of age. So if we live in a culture in which young is good and old is bad, strong is good and weak is bad, right? Quick is good and slow is bad. Independent is good and dependent is bad. And all of a sudden we wake up and we, we have all those traits. What happens? All of those traits have been dormant in the shadow and the unconscious because they've been unacceptable. They've been, they've been forbidden. They've been denied. But then all of a sudden here they are, or gradually, you know, these traits emerge. Um, I'm slower or I feel weaker or I feel dependent. And people freak out regardless of how much spiritual practice they've done because this material is emerging from the shadow. So we can go back and we can meditate and we can center ourselves and we can silence our minds, right? But at the same time, that's not going to process these um, unconscious fears and beliefs that we've internalized from the culture. So I really tried to work in the book to build this bridge between shadow work and spiritual practice. And um, partly because that's what I've lived, you know, it comes really directly out of my own practice, out of my own life. And it's what I worked with during um, my clinical practice for so long. I'm retired from that now, but that was really, every time I taught shadow work, I taught meditation. Yeah. Because you can't yeah. really face your shadow unless you have a way to return to loving awareness and sit in it and find the refuge in loving awareness, right? And then when the shadow material comes, you're more grounded. I don't even think it's about a bridge. I mean, I'm being a little bit cutesy, but the reality is it's one to yes. me, it's just there's only one thing going on. If that particular, if the aspects of the shadow do not get attended to, and, and if we continue on, you know, everybody knows the spiritual bypass thing. Yes. If we continue on that path, it just continues to be very difficult because then uh, you, getting into that center that is beyond judgment and all of the, particularly um, if we can't move from that place, which is so much freer and so much more spacious, if we can't move into Ramdas's loving awareness, or if we're, our mind is still come with it down, you know, that's another spiritual bypass. We're just using it in the way that's most convenient to continue with the defense mechanisms and the passive aggressiveness and all of those things, yeah, that's those right. shadows. That's so it right. has to be one. That's it, right. They have to be 
really interconnected or either one of them precludes the other one and we split you know we have in psychology this word that we're splitting so we don't want to split our psychological and spiritual work yeah Um, you know yeah oh no i just i i love this thing in the book uh i never i mean i love robert bly and his translations and his wonderful work yes i don't know if i ever it's a little book on the Human shadow. Yes, I don't think I've ever seen that, but I I love how you quoted him. When we are young, we uh, carry behind us an invisible bag, into which we stuff any feelings, thoughts, or behaviors that bring disapproval or loss of love, anger, tears, neediness, laziness. By the time we go to school, our bags are already a mile long. Mine was. 10 miles long, okay? Oh, in high school, our peer groups pressure us to stuff the bags with even more individuality, sexuality, spontaneity, different opinions. We spend our life until we're 20 deciding which parts of ourselves to put in the bag. It's great. And we spend the rest of our lives trying to get them out again. That's right. Oh, that's And really then good. trying to transcend them. Yeah, and transform. Right? Point. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Robert, you know, we lost him a couple months ago. And yeah. he was really um, hmm. as kind of ornery and eccentric as he was. He was a brilliant poet and translator and um, gift to the world. And um, yeah. So we're losing a lot of folks in in our generation, in the boomer generation and the silent generation. People are Mm -hmm. moving on, becoming ancestors now. But, you know, one of the things that I noticed and that motivated me to write again, because I really didn't think I was going to write another book. This is my sixth book. Mm. um, Was that there's no rite of passage in our culture to become an elder. There's no ritual. There's no acknowledgement. We become a senior on our Medicare birthday. But what does that really mean? Because many people, I think there are 10,000 people turning 65 every day now in our generation. Really? Yeah. And what does that mean? Because most, many folks, I don't want to say most, but many folks uh, grow depressed. They feel isolated. They feel, um, you know, separation from others. They feel, uh, and some people get very rigid and regretful, you know. And so is that an elder? So for me, Mm. elder is a stage, not an age. It's a level of consciousness. And we can have many levels of consciousness within elderhood, but it's an it's an it's a stage rather than an age. And so I realized that there were certain developmental tasks that we needed to go through to become elders that are not taught anywhere in our culture. And so my hope is that the book takes people kind of step by step through this process and then toward becoming a spiritual elder for those who are interested in doing practices. 
and um, finding the practice that's right for who they are now, that really fits who they are now after a long life experience. And, you know, that's not for everybody, right? That's not for everybody. It's not for everybody to, you know, disidentify with the body or with the story. But some people are ready to. Some people are ready to um, recognize who they really are and live from that level of consciousness. So for me, and I've been hearing from clinicians who are using the books with older adult patients, that um, it does work like that. It does help people kind of to step-by-step go through cleaning up their emotional business, their unfinished business, cleaning up their spiritual unfinished business, you know, how to do a life review, including from the shadow material, all of these tools so that when you actually um, finish the book and you found your spiritual practice, you're at a different stage of life. You're emerging as an elder. And that's really my hope and my wish for this book, which will be my last book. (laughs) Official announcement. <laughs> you yeah. know, the, uh, I mean, that's a, an interesting s- subject. We're actually uh, in these days thinking about it because, uh, you know, the retreats we're holding have, pe- for the most part, people who are, have naturally 70s. gone. Yeah, they're, they're, of course, old 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases, even 80s, even mm-hmm. 80s, my yes. God. Uh, and yes. uh, it's looking towards mentoring as, a, uh, as an off- obvious option because there, it, there's a need. Yes. There is a need. And more especially, of course, what we're going through these days. And uh, so... Uh, I think that that it is happening naturally, and and I'm happy about that. In in our own lineage, so to speak, um, it's a little actually more difficult than in, in Buddhist lineage, the Bhakti lineage, meaning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because uh, th- there's much less of a intellectual a way to, for the intellect to grab on to something. That's so true. Which is the beauty of it. Which is why all the retreats that we do have, of uh, well, Ramdas had all of his Buddhist, our Buddhist friends from Jack Cornfield on. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, this is highly important, and and I am totally in sync with you. This isn't a. I know plenty of people who are in my age group, who I you know my son is more mature and more. Um, has has a perspective that is uh, way more spacious, shall we, shall we say? Yes. You know, um, here's something good to elaborate on. I think um, you talk about the feelings and capacities that were rejected by the ego and exiled into the shadow contain the hidden treasures of late life. If the ego strives for strong, then weak goes into the shadow. The ego strives for progress, then 
a decline goes into the shadow, et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned it a little bit in terms of it's all about speed, you know. Yes. And and in fact, elder, as far as the general population is concerned, it's, it's a nuisance that you got to get them over to the nursing home. That's the biggest thing that most people, and you got to then attend to it. And then you got to worry about it and you got to get emotionally distraught about it. But, you know, uh, providing something to uh, uh, of wisdom that never gets thought out never so um, so anyhow what you say is when one of those bad traits from the shadow manifests in late life the inner critic can get loud and that's where all this judgmental stuff which is you know harks back to the efficacy of finding any practice that gets you behind you thinking you are any of those things yes and um and I like what you say here when we, and this is what I'd love to investigate a little bit, when we can romance it or coax it out into an awareness like a coy lover, it will, a lover, it will tend to recede back behind the curtain. With patience, we can invite it into the light. The very important, maybe just flesh that out. So, you know, to Ramdas's community, I can say more explicitly, this is about witnessing. I mean, you mentioned spaciousness. This is about cultivating the space or the witness from the noise in the mind. I didn't use that term in the book because it's not really well known. But when we can witness um, the self-talk, whether it's a critic, I had many older female clients who were experiencing self-hate as their bodies changed, Mm. as they got wrinkles Mm -hmm. or a little heavy around the middle. Um, A lot of um, horrors, you know, to the ego. That was like the worst nightmare that their egos could stand. And with men, I found dependency carried a lot of charge. So what we're saying there, what I was saying in the, piece that you read is when these feelings and fears are unconscious, they hold a lot of charge. When we begin to let them out of the box and witness them little by little, they begin to lose their charge. And the more that we can do that, the more um, liberated we become from them so that we're no longer so overshadowed that we're identifying with that voice. I call it a shadow character. So people identify it, they identify what they're saying to themselves, what they're feeling, what's going on in the body, then they give it a name. So say the inner ageist, we mentioned that. So you recognize that the inner ageist is feeling shame about how you look. And you really, you start to work with that. You can dialogue with it. You make it conscious in many ways. Some people draw it. Some people write letters to it. Um, And as you make it more conscious, the shadow character in relation to age, then what happens is it loses its charge. And it doesn't become so controlling of your psyche. And then it becomes easier to witness it. You know, um, I wanted to mention, because you mentioned Bhakti, I interviewed mm. Krishnadas 
in the yes, book. I, I interviewed a whole bunch of spiritual teachers. I actually feel so privileged that I was able to to talk to Father Thomas Keating mm, right before, before he, he got, yeah. yeah, right before he left. Um, Rabbi Rami, um, Ken Wilbur, lots of teachers. But you know, Krishnadas said a funny thing to me. He said, first he said, I sent the invitation. I wanted him to talk about his own experience of aging. And hmm. um, and first he said, I have to check it out with Maraji. So he went for a walk without telling me. He said, I'll, I'll get back to you. He went for a walk. And a couple days later, he emailed and he said, I walked by a bookstore and meeting the shadow, your book was in the window. So I knew I should talk to you. Mm-hmm. So this is a kind of a, you know, orientation to bhakti um, that is different from other traditions and that that has this tremendous beauty of love. And in some ways, like you said, easier to transcend the mind because it's not about identifying with thoughts and stories and beliefs, right? And then there are these other people who I interviewed who were all about their beliefs, Right. And all about sort of the mental plane yeah. and um, and the development of their beliefs, the development of their thinking, you know. So I, I just want to say I, I, the reason I'm talking about this is that the book is not written based on your beliefs. I was I, I, may, I was very intentional about not making it dogmatic, like if you don't believe in life after death and don't bother with this book, it's not about that. It's not about metaphysics. It's not about what you believe or don't believe. It's about the internal experience of aging from the inside out, the psychological and spiritual um, challenges and possibilities for this time of life. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But again, the core for me is the practicality. You're talking about this yes. is not about beliefs. This is about practicality. This These, is, about, this is about just looking and seeing what perspective you're, you're coming from, looking at the deepest, darkest shadows, looking at the habitual patterns and the neurotic tendencies. I mean, and, and right. that has to be rolled into uh the the idea that practice will help move you into what ramdas calls loving awareness center of the chess soul yes. buddha mind whatever they're all the yes they're same. all the same all the so same. let's talk about the shift from role to soul okay because you know <laughs> some of our listeners may be very familiar with that and others may not have heard of it for 20 years i mean ramdas was talking about it a long time ago mm-hmm so as I was writing, that phrase came to me like an echo from the past. <laughs> I mean, the halls of decades, you know. And I realized that that was what I was writing about, that I was writing about the shift from what we do to who we are. And that our identification with what we do, our roles, I call the doer the shadow character of the doer. 
And what happens in our culture, which is so, um, so emphasizes doing and success and achievement and productivity, what happens when that slows down? Or you're forced into retirement? Or your family rules change and your kids are gone? Or whatever circumstance changes and that role that you've identified with is done. People tend to have a lot of identity crisis during those times, right? Mm -hmm. So this shift from role to soul is about recognizing, you know, the um, universal recognition that we are that, we are spirit, we are soul, we are loving awareness, we are Buddha nature. We are not what we do. And what we do comes and goes, and it changes through the lifespan, and it changes through lifetimes, but it's not who we are. And so for me, um, you know, Ramdas said it all in those three words, roll to soul. And that's um, really what I want, what I'm hoping that readers will focus on, which is how to explore that internal spiritual shift in their own world, in their own inner world. And it's not easy. No, most of us are compulsive doers, right? And we feel good if we were productive at the end of the day, you know, and we go to a party and someone says, what do you do? That's the first thing people say. So it's not easy. And, but it's our task. That is the spiritual task from my point of view. Yeah. Well, it's not even a, a task. If you want to continue being unhappy, uptight, worried, and full of anxiety, then don't attend to this. By ver- I'm being really crude. But, uh, but really, it is, uh, it, it's a self-generated task. I mean, it's what happened. I was just so miserable and I was, when I was a teenager up until when I was 20 or something. Yeah. I mean, I was wide open and and ready. And when the thing came, I jumped on it. And I jumped on it because I was tired of being the mess that I was. So know. maybe calling is better than task. Calling. You, know, you hear the call or you feel the yearning for something more. Yeah. Listen to it. That's a really important, valuable feeling or voice or sensation yeah. That's, yeah yeah and it's amazing how when that perspective shifts by virtue of doing some practice and being with people who have the same thing in mind is to get free of this stuff things really do shift and that perspective uh, is suddenly from a much more elevated place where things are seen more clearly, motivations most especially, yes, uh, which is a thing that traps us uh, in- immensely. So here's another thing from from the book that again points to it's not for old people, okay? <laughs> uh, and it's 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 what you were talking about before, which is including shadow work with uh, meditation as as it's. It, you, you, you can't deal with it unless you are 
moving into a place through, and meditation can be chanting, it's, it's getting behind the mind so that there's more spaciousness and you're not following and believing the thoughts, you know, willy-nilly. Right, and right. So once that happens, then the uh, self-interested motivations and the subconscious shadows and so on are just, uh, you can be way more friendly with them and kind of invite them in and hang That's out, right. uh, you know, rather than That's pushing right. away and running the other That's way. That's right. That's right. Um, if you say here, if we are to allow into conscious awareness that which we most fear and dread, such as dependency, degeneration, and death, <laughs> the, well, those are the big three right there. You got. We need to be grounded in something larger than our personality, something beyond ego, which lies within each of us. So. That start doing that as soon as you realize you got fooled when they gave you a name and everything <laughs> and and you just identified that way and did what you everything that was you're supposed to do, and once you realize that, like Adi Ashanti, you, you know Adi Ashanti, mm-hmm. he realized that when he was like six or something, and how he realized it, he said, "I can't, I don't understand why all these adults all around me are acting out in the most obnoxious ways." <laughs> angry and shouting and drink whatever and then around i i think it's true around 10 11 12 years old he was something happened that just kicked him into the realization mm-hmm. i know what's going on with these people mm-hmm. they believe their thoughts that's right that's what he said and then he that's went right. into he was he went he wanted to find out what thoughts were and he went into meditation and um, yeah, and the rest is history. He's a wonderful That's teacher. Right. So uh, pure awareness, the portal to silent va- uh, vastness. And um, that's got to be the mo- in terms of practice. Talk a little bit about that, you know. And I know you included from my turn from doing to being, and that's a, a big part of that. Well, it's really what we have been talking about. Um, there are these three portals that I suggest are really needed to become an elder. And one is shadow awareness. So we're connected to the psyche and we start to uncover what's repressed in the shadow. And um, that way we're not gonna act it out self-destructively or destructive of others. Um, We connect to mortality awareness so that we're not in denial. I love that. Uh, by the way, mortality so, awareness. Right. So like we're not Don in Juan. Yes, that's right. Right? Death that's right. is on your left I had shoulder. a Don Juan experience, I'll tell you. I can tell you. I haven't uh, said this in any other interview, but, you know, I was working with a satsang, and these were people I had gotten to know, and each time I opened my mouth, somebody said, that's a concept. That's a concept. And this went on for, I don't know, half an hour. That's a concept. <laughs> no matter what I said, that's a concept. And my mind stopped and it fell onto the floor. All the contents of consciousness emptied out onto the floor. And it was a Don Juan, you know, where he talked about the world stopping. That was, that was how he described the shift in consciousness. And that's what happened. And I sat there with this hollow head 
and recognize instantly that I'm not my thoughts. I mean, my thoughts are sitting on the floor and I'm still here. Right. So I am not my thoughts. So, and then, so mortality awareness and pure awareness. So pure awareness or loving awareness um, or whatever we call it, transcendence or um, emptiness, you know, whatever we call it, um, that there's some connection to this transpersonal, non-dual, universal center that's in all of us, this center of consciousness that's within us. And for me, those are the three portals to becoming an elder. And I've met many people now over the last, I would say, two decades who live in very high levels of consciousness, who are ordinary people, um, who live full-time in non-duality, who don't experience, you know, separation, whether it's in space-time or body-mind or, you know, who have really attained um, highest degrees of consciousness. Mm. And it's been very inspiring for me to recognize because I've been sitting for so long and I have my own experiences, but they're not, um, they're states. They're not levels that remain for me. Whereas my husband is in this very permanent, completely expanded, non-dual reality. And so are some of my friends. So I'm telling you that because this is not a pipe dream. This is not wistful thinking. Um, This is not, you know, 1960s, you know, let's go back and drop acid because that's the only way, you know, there's no other option at this because a lot of people are feeling that now. I really am so grateful that I know these people for whom the promise of spiritual practice has materialized. And it's really quite wonderful. And I saw some of that with Ramdas, you know, when I was up close to him, I saw him become more radiant. And I don't know, you know, his internal subjective reality, but I certainly did see expansion and radiance grow in him. And egolessness, you know, that that there was less and less ego, ego's agenda. Mm. You know, I don't know. Did you see him in Maui after he mm-hmm. moved there mm-hmm. and everything? That's when um, his consciousness certainly yes. turned completely into what can I do for you, not yes. what you can do for me. Mm-hmm. So um, the the uh, that uh, well, there's a, in terms of by the way, role to soul, yes, and the whole identity thing. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Becoming Nobody, the film that was done a couple of years ago. Oh, yes, I did. Yeah, Yeah. so that has all of that whole arc all the way to him talking about death and dying. Yes, right. And within it, though, my favorite thing is, you know, when is it enough of what I need? Mm -hmm. When is it enough of what I want? It's much more interesting to serve people. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what happened to him and... And in that term, to me, that's that's right on. I mean, maybe, you know, as you said, who knows the internal consciousness of a being mm-hmm. uh, and, and how much there was uh, 
the um, absence of objectivity from mm-hmm. me to you. Mm-hmm. But I know there was a lot that had gotten wiped free for him. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, no, he certainly stands as an example mm-hmm. uh, of that. Um, the, you, there was one thing here that really um, got me. Okay. Trust has in it the seed of betrayal. That's how I took it, by the way. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, scary. Because mm-hmm. I am a big proponent of trust. I trusted Ramdas when mm-hmm. I first met, first second I met him mm-hmm. because of his ability to, there was no Richard Alpert, there was no Ramdas. There was just, what is it that you need? And I will be there and it won't be me. But uh, I didn't know it then, but Maharaj Neem Karoli Bob, it was, mm-hmm. you know, he was allowing that to, just using Ramdas was just a nice um, mm-hmm. uh, tool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, what Ramdas used to call, I'm, I'm the worm on the fishing <laughs> line. <laughs> that's what he said. <laughs> uh, that's so great. Um, well, you know, so Hillman, trust, trust yes. got me, you know, and that's... Uh, that's really important. If you, for me, if you can, you, everyone has ineffable experiences of some sort through, it could be through entheogens, it could be through music, it could be whatever. And the point being that trusting that opens up an entire world. Discrimination, spiritual discrimination has to be there with this trust. And that's to me the, um, a, a little bit of the dichotomy, right? But trust in well, the seed of betrayal. What are we talking about here? So what we're talking about is James Hillman, who lived in duality and was exploring psychological dynamics and basically saying that any, you know, um, one-sided feeling contains its opposite. So, and if we don't, so if I trust you and you act out in a way that's harmful to me, I shouldn't be surprised because I know you have a shadow. Correct. So that's what he was saying. Uh And I think what is important um, is not that it won't hurt me. It's not that it wouldn't disappoint me or even break my heart. But it's that at this point, I'm not going to be that surprised because I'm no longer naive Mm -hmm. about human being, about the darkness of human beings, as we see on the world stage now. So I think that um, that section on emotional repair and healing and betrayal um, is not, doesn't have the spiritual, the larger spiritual framework. Uh It's a psychological section. I got it. Yeah. I got it. Now and I so tru- by trust, he means blind trust. Right. Right. Well, let's see. What I would say, well, I'll use Ram Dass because, you know, he's the most well-known example. He's a great example. Um, I would say that my intuition played a big role in the kind of trust that I had with Ramdas, where there was no possibility of 
that trust being broken because it was beyond his personality. Mm. And so I guess that is the spiritual element. I was very fortunate. That's who I ran into when I was searching. And uh, uh, I was very fortunate. <laughs> I mean, karma, good karma yeah. in that respect. Yeah. Now, if I trusted a friend that, as you said, was, you know, the shadows are were still there, the subject-object stuff was still there, I would have not gotten bent out of shape had I that trust, you know, being abused in some way. Right. So I th- so again that's intuition there I think we do know when um look every people get fooled all the time it's a very difficult thing uh, yeah it's very trust. tricky yeah it's very, very tricky. tricky and it's it's difficult because you know projection is unconscious so when we project onto someone yeah, exactly. that they're good or that yeah. they're evolved or that they're yep. enlightened yeah a whole dynamic gets constellated with that projection. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And that's a whole other conversation. Muddy river, muddy water there. That's happens. a whole yeah. conversation yeah. to have, yeah. yeah. Well, it's uh, actually, I, I think that uh, the pursuit in particular, for me, um, of, of just connecting with a wisdom that I trust, it's the Tibetans, and it mm-hmm. always has been, and... Uh, I think that's really helped in terms of what I mentioned before, discriminating wisdom, which is absolutely necessary. Yes, that's and, right. Um, and the best way of getting there is really um, opening oneself up, not to any particular, I mean, I love the Tibetans. There's people everywhere that you can bump into that is a teacher you could trust that at, at the beginning can lead you into the right discrimination. And it, 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 discriminating wisdom is extremely important. So, and there are Tibetan teachers who've acted out their shadows in horrific ways. Yeah, really. Yeah. I won't name uh, them. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but... Um, yeah. Count on, on, on the... The universe does take care. There mm-hmm. is... Everyone has that which is... a. Is a bad term because it's abused, which is guru, mm-hmm. which is gu- just use guide. There is something that the universe connects into your very core of your being, which you can, through intuition, learn to trust, even without a manifestation. But normally, if one is opening up a manifestation, there's so many of them, Christ and Buddha doesn't, you know, or it's more like a Neem Karoli Baba, which is a local thing that happened in the last 50, 60 years. So yeah, trust and intuition and a little sprinkling of discriminating wisdom, you and know, all in, will be well. In Vedanta, there's a whole path of discrimination. It's a mm-hmm. yogic path. Mm, yeah. That teaches Viveka, you, right? Viveka. It teaches you to say, not this, not that, yeah. not this, mm. not that. You know, mm. and what you're basically yeah. doing, right? You're basically discriminating between the relative and the absolute. Yeah. Between, you know, this and that consciousness. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So it's really important to be discriminating in the in this in the spiritual world. 
I don't know Ken Wilbur. Huh. I know of Ken for a long time, right? Ken has been teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a couple of things in here. I like he, he told you content, contemplative practice is so important in late life because now we need to let go and detach from limited identities and self-images to continue to evolve. We continue to have experiences, but learn to witness this and let go, witness that and let go. Um, Again, to me, this is important for a 21-year-old, okay, to get into contemplative practice and learn how to detach from the roles and identities. I mean, get a head start on it is is what I think, right? Um. You know, there's mixed press about that, Raghu, because in the world of psychology, we believe that we need egos to go through the world, that we need to develop a healthy ego to function in society, to build the foundation for a life, if we're not going to live a monastic life, to build a foundation, and that we have to be somebody before we can become nobody. So there's that argument. There's the other argument that, you know, more is more like the ego is the enemy and we should kind of transcend it as soon as we can. So I think this is a, there's kind of individual assessment about this. Um, I certainly had people in my clinical practice who didn't really develop kind of consolidated egos and had a very hard time in the world mm. as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And I met a man a number of years ago who I came to know very, very well, who never really developed an ego, a really high being. I mean, maybe the highest being I've ever met, because I spoke to him every week and heard the, you know, the, the internal experience that was mm. unfolding in him, so I knew about it. Um, and he said he had 15 minutes of ignorance in his whole life. And it was, it was hell. He couldn't believe that's how other people live. But after all of this intimate friendship, he acted out his shadow with my husband and me. Mm. So what does that tell us about the need for ego and psychological development? I, my sense is that um, I said the way that I came to understand this was that because he didn't really have psychological development, he also didn't have moral development, mm. which wow. is part of the relative, right? It's part of relative, mm-hmm. you know, and so with, and so even though, I mean, I am certain that he's, his attainment is magnificent. He didn't really have emotional and moral mm-hmm. development in the way that I expected him to. And most people I know have cultivated that. And so it's very tricky to say 20-year-olds should transcend their ego. I don't know. I'm, well, I don't know. I'm not saying transcend ego. That's okay. a whole, uh, that's like saying okay, they should saying, get enlightened at 21. They should do the practice which allows the witness to take place so that they do see they are not their identities, they are not their roles, they are not their thoughts, so that there's a beginning to the 
to the practice of becoming nobody. Yes, there has to be, I mean, one would hope in one's early 20s that one's ego is well-developed, of course, but... uh, yeah, this isn't about going for the brass ring. This is just about how, how okay. can we be a little bit more okay. clear in our... Spacious uh, inside. Yeah, yeah. And <clears> how, <throat> how we can really see the way in which we get caught and what gives us suffering and grasping and all of that okay. stuff. Okay, yeah. gotcha. That's... Well, this is yeah. a conversation that could go on in a, a, for a few days, right? <laughs> it's good. Yeah, Let's go so get much, our sleeping bags. Yeah, there's so much good stuff. Really, really. Connie, thanks for writing this. Thank this you great. so much. I um, love talking with you. And um, and you have, of course, music is everything to me. And, and center in your book is Leonard Cohen. Yes. Okay. Leonard, you know, he comes from Montreal. He was my hero when I was a kid. And then you quote him as he's saying to us, there, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Talk about, you know, that's just incredible. It's okay to be human on one level. And then know that, this is my own interpretation of Leonard's words, but know that the universe is providing a way to transform. And that goes to Ramdas talking about um, suffering brings me closer to God, which is one of the hardest concepts. So next time we talk, Connie, we'll talk about that. That sounds great. It's right. a plan. So everybody, uh, you go to Mind Rolling, BeHereNowNetwork.com. Uh, I mean, go to the landing page on BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Mind Rolling. And uh, links to Connie's book, which will be uh, here shortly. Actually, probably be here just when this comes out in March, right? No, no, Um, the book is out. Oh, it's already out? Yeah, in fact, may I say one more thing? Yeah. The book is out. Um, People who've been reading it have been reaching out to me asking for how to follow up. Yeah. And so they're forming wisdom circles now to read the book and do the practices in the book together in community. So there are about 30 circles now of people aging in community. And if you're interested in that, you can email me, ConnieZweig at gmail.com. Put wisdom circle in the subject line so that I catch it. Mm-hmm. And I will connect you with other people who are reading the book. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we'll have that on in the show notes, and which is where the link to get the book will be as well. And... Again, this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. Don't forget about the Gita course, which is ramdas.org slash Gita course and sign up. That's a wonderful talk about practice. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Connie. Thank you. Thank you. Much love. Much love.